when I'm coding all night. Project won't compile, it'll be alright. Computer science for life, and that's my direction. Instead of B-Balls, my home is throw exceptions. Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. This is a special edition of DMP Tonight, a recording of the Borgfest Law Symposium, put out with the help of Austin's very own Body Hacking Con. We definitely want to thank them for sharing with us the content, as well as the Borgfest meetup for hosting these events. If you'd like to know more about the Body Hacks Con, please go to bodyhackingcon.com. And remember, when you purchase your tickets, use coupon code Dangerous Minds to get 10% off your purchase. Plus, if you're in the Austin area, please check out meetup.com orgfest-meetup-group and learn more about the exciting topics that they cover. Up first, before sharing this recording with you, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delves cut delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. And if you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of the Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at DangerousMinds.io and or email us at info at DangerousMinds.io and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. Um, we're tasked with talking about expression um, uh, and some of the issues that, that Rich raised, but we're also, I think, um, as we looked at the, at the agenda, realized that if privacy fits anywhere, it's probably in our panel, and we think that there's a, a, a wealth of privacy-related issues here that uh, intermingle with the expression issues posed by kind of the cyborg uh, phenomenon. So we'll probably quickly move into some privacy issues because they're pretty meaty. But to start with a pure expression, and by the way, I think what Pete and I decided we're going to do, we're just going to talk um, and have a conversation in front of you, um, maybe to each other, but hopefully with you as well, um, with no real um, outline or structure. Um, that sounds like we, we're very forward-thinking and thinking that would be the best way to do this. It's actually because we didn't prepare an outline or structure. Um, but, uh, but I think it'll work well. Um, so on the expression side, um, you know, one of the things that I that Pete and I talked about when we sat down to brainstorm about this that I find fascinating, um, and it really does show how these issues merge a little bit with privacy, is the, 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 um, the fascinating question about um, forced speech. Um, you know, constitutionally, there are circumstances where the government cannot force you to speak, most notably uh, the right against self-incrimination. And so um, if I'm accused of a crime, I can uh, plead the fifth and say I don't have to tell you uh, what you're asking me. Uh, uh, that is, I think, functionally there as a barrier to keep people from, uh, you know, forcing my testimony against my will and to disincentivize people from coercing me to say things. And so I can just say I don't have to tell you. Um, and there's an interesting thing that happens, I think, and uh, maybe Pete can jump in on this, um, when uh, you juxtapose my individual right not to incriminate myself um, versus whether or not the devices that have been implanted in me or that are intimate to me, and I, I think that a cell phone is, is almost implanted in me these days, right? it's in my hand all the time, 
And when those devices are more than just mechanical, but but have um, the ability to sense things and record things and store information, um, can the government uh, force me to turn over the contents of those devices, which would have the same basic effect as if they forced me to testify against myself, right? So they can't say, for example, in a criminal investigation, you know, where were you yesterday afternoon? I can say I plead the fifth, I don't have to tell you, but they can grab my phone um, with the right court order and find out where I was yesterday afternoon because the phone's with me all the time and gets that information. So Pete, where do we draw that line, do you think? Well, let's back up just, just a little bit. I mean, you know, Cyborg is kind of, kind of Rich's hook on this thing and to simplify it for me to understand because, you know, although, you know, I play a tech lawyer on TV, I'm not really a very technically savvy person. Uh, I've got it. I sort of you think in terms of either a replacement part, right, where, where technology is now fixing a human body in a way that needed fixing, you know, as simple as hip replacements to, you know, um, you know, could be, I guess, you know, new, you know, even alive, you know, new tissues or something, or enhanced, where technology is now enhancing a human ability, either by improving your vision, improving your hearing, uh, or more likely really improving your memory and your perception uh, and then keeping a record of it uh, and then a lot of the issues being around you're now recording information in a way that you didn't before uh, in a way that could be retrieved by people who are interested in it the government's interested in retrieving information from you because they want to know where you were who you talked to what you said what you did or other parties are interested in that because they're planning on suing you or they're suing somebody else and they're going to be interested in this information that you have. It used to be fairly clear division between what do you remember in your head versus what do documents reflect. And traditionally, you had a lot more protection about what you had in your head, what you remember, versus documents that you have. And there is a sort of distinction in the law between compelled testimony, meaning we're going to pull on your fingernails until you speak something out of your head, versus we're going to rummage through your diary or other documents. Uh, and traditionally, you've had a lot less protection from at least self-incrimination, forced speech, in your documents because it doesn't violate or so the law thinks, doesn't violate sort of norms of what level do we extract information from people? What do you force them to do to testify against themselves? And, you know, as Ed is suggesting, this is one of the areas where the lines are now going to blur, uh, where given the technology where you may be carrying around lots of information in your body technologically, uh, you may feel like a court order a judge, a cop, requiring you to divulge information, even if it's not through speaking, through recalling something and speaking it out loud, but you're being forced to divulge information from technology that you carry, that you wear, that's embedded in you, feels the same in a way as having your fingernails pulled on until you give that information versus to execute a search warrant at your house. Uh, and so it is, it's, you know, the, 
law largely moves by analogy. You know, so what does this most look like? You know, does this look more like something in a drawer at home? Does it look more like extracting information from your head? Uh, and so you get pretty quickly, as Ed and I did when we were chatting about this, from issues of expression, free speech. Can I say what I want to say? Am I responsible for what I said? Will the law hold me liable for things that I said? Or will the law try to keep me from saying things, which is largely what free speech doctrine is about, to this you know, idea of, are you going to force me to say something I don't want to say? Uh, and am I going to incriminate myself? Am I going to incriminate somebody else? Uh, and am I, is it different now if you're getting it out of a piece of technology? Um, and, and then you very quickly kind of get into privacy issues, which is this is information I don't want anybody to know, even though it might be interesting or relevant to some legal issue. You know, and by the way, lest we think this is all in the future, right, there certainly are compelled data that the government gets out of you now, maybe controversially, but I mean, if you get pulled over after having a few beers in Austin, you know, whether you like it or not, on certain times they can forcibly extract your blood, take the data out of your blood to determine whether or not you've been drinking, right? And, and that has passed at least some level of constitutional muster as a non-self uh, you know, uh, it's not testimony against yourself, but rather it's it's more akin to uh, presumably the case law about you know taking your documents. That it's you know this is this is data, not testimony. I think that's a it's a it's a it's a fine line there, but the issue really gets driven home when your testimony you know can be extracted by being downloaded. So if you have you know, implantable um, video devices in your eyes that are not only helping you see better, but are then recording what you've seen. You know, is there a meaningful difference between the government saying, tell me what you saw yesterday, which would be, you know, Fifth Amendment protected. You could say, no, I don't have to do that, to them saying, well, give me, you know, forcibly let me take a download of the, the stored images from your eyes so I can see what you saw yesterday, which I think you know, at least you would imagine some people are going to argue would be okay. Right? And I think that's a, it's going to be an issue that gets increasingly blurry um, as we store more data about ourselves in ourselves yeah. that could be extracted from yeah. ourselves. I, I'm sure you do this when, I mean, both Ed and I are trial lawyers, um, and you prepare witnesses to testify. And one of the hardest things to get people to say, particularly smart people, um, is I don't know or I don't remember. Uh, there is the male answer syndrome or just the answer syndrome of smart people, you know, being unable to say, I just don't know. Uh, and so they'll guess uh, or they'll make stuff up. And so I spent a lot of time trying to get witnesses to say, I don't remember. And I don't remember if it's the truth is the right answer. I don't remember what I had for breakfast a week ago. Uh, and I don't need to be guessing about that. I'm just going to get in trouble if it turns out that two weeks ago I had frosted flakes, but I'm confident that I had something healthier than that, I get in trouble with it. And, you know, the enhancement, so you've got, you know, if you got something recording everything you saw or everything you did or every place that you were, uh, I don't answer goes away, uh, or I don't know as a good answer kind of goes away. Uh, and so, you know, the volume 
of information that can be extracted from you is a whole lot more than it used to be. I mean, you used to have, in a sense, privacy protected by the lack of record of things. It just, you know, my privacy is, is good because nobody's really keeping track of me. Who gave a darn what I did two or three weeks ago, right? Nobody was paying attention. Nobody was recording it. Uh, if it ever comes to the government's interest, what I did a month ago, I don't know, nobody would have ever known in the 1970s. Uh, but now, if somebody gets interested in it, you, you no longer have that protection of, I don't remember, uh, because your phone's going to remember, or your chip is going to remember, or, you know, Google Maps is going to remember. Uh, and so, we all have to start thinking more deeply about how do we value that, and how are we going to protect that information if we think it's valuable to protect it. The, the information can have serious social value as well. You aggregate that kind of data, you can do all sorts of stuff, you know, right, with self-driving cars or with, you know, letting people know where traffic is and all sorts of valuable things. And some people, you maybe have a really good reason to want to know where they were three weeks ago when the bomb got planted or the drug deal was made. To be able to tie that person to a particular location at a time can be a very valuable thing for society. But given the enormous amount of this data that's now being stored on people's behavior, people's location, uh, and even you know what we're thinking in terms about physical condition, what was your heart rate at the time you were in that location? Because maybe your heart rate is going to tell you or tell us something, which is if your heart rate's normal, maybe you weren't doing anything, but boy, your heart rate was 130 when you were in that grocery store. Maybe you were shoplifting. Or what were your eyes looking at at that moment? Yeah, right? you know, yeah that's Ed worries about this. Yeah, for some a lot. Um, you know, <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's a tell. I think. I mean, it's not just it's not just the video that your eyes could take, but literally what you were focusing on could be incriminating, right? And so, you know, if you're looking at the wrong things at the wrong time, one could imagine, you know, a prosecutor making a case out of that. It's like, hey, he typically glances over at the teller every time he walks into the bank and or looks at the security guard, right, you know, for whatever reason. I think it's also interesting that we, we, when this topic first comes up, we think a lot about the information we collect about ourselves in these, with these augmented tech, you know, augment, augmenting technologies or enhancing technologies. But it also, I think, is worth thinking about for a moment that everyone who will have such augmentations will also be collecting information about their environment which could be you as well. And so one could imagine that innocent, non-involved individuals could, will be more likely to be sucked into um, you know, these types of scenarios simply because they were there and recording what happened. And so if you're really interested in whether or not I'm the guy who planted the bomb, you would not only want all my stuff, but you might also want all the stuff from all the people who were around at the time. And so if you happen to be where the bomb or in the vicinity of the area where the bomb was planted and you're also recording what's going on uh, or, or keeping records of that, um, one could imagine that there would be warrants issued for your information as well because with that information aggregated up, you could get a really uh, you know, multi-camera picture of what went on. And while that sounds wonderful for law enforcement, you know, there are obviously civil liberties concerns 
about all of us all the time working for law enforcement or aggregating that data for them. Um, and I think that under the current regime, the current laws strike a balance that probably if it is no longer calibrated if we're envisioning these types of, of, of scenarios. You know, there's, like Pete said, you know, we're limited by our improper hardware and software right now to be able to say, and by the way, it's not just kind of, right? You know, July 17th last year, anyone, you know, what were you doing, right? The only way most of us could possibly answer that question is to refer back to a device that has been keeping that information for us. But when that information is in us, in, you know, accessible internally or otherwise because the device has moved into us, then everyone has that information, which means we are all more likely to be subject to government inquiry about that or other types of, not doesn't have to be government if you read Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, right? there's a market for that information. If I want to know if my spouse was unfaithful to me, one way I could do it would be buy everyone's cameras who, you know, were vision, uh, recordings from people who were wherever she was when I was worried about it, and so there's all kinds of implications, not only for the self, but I think about what you are collecting about your environment that's going to make your information uh, valuable and and possibly you know wanting and wanting it. Yeah, and it's and it, it these kind of discussions you know are really important, uh, particularly about the people who are inventing the technologies who are first adopters, who are the first folks to spot issues, both the opportunity and then the problems with these, because the law is always way behind. I mean, you all know that. Um, but, you know, you don't look to lawyers to lay out a rational framework for any new technology. You're going to be way behind. Lawyers, judges, legislatures will all be way behind. Uh, and so these kind of conversations amongst folks are real important so that you can start to identify shared values or particular problematic, you know, situations among the folks who use them because ultimately almost all of these privacy issues are going to be balances uh, uh, and really expressions of social value, not some law handed down, you know, by judges or lawyers. It really is going to be a social decision. But I mean, as an example of how far behind the law is, part of my traditional, you know, legal background is representing journalists back in the old days of, you know, TV, real TV journalism and newsprint and all. And issues dealing with subpoenas uh, uh, were fairly well worked out um, as to at what point could the government force a journalist to turn over notes or force a journalist to testify. Um, and that's all been thrown open now because the whole idea of a definition of a journalist has been thrown in, into the air. Who is and who isn't? Some of the most important journalism being done now are people who just happen to be there uh, with a camera and just happen to have the, the presence of mind to turn the camera on, record, and then publish it. And the law is struggling with just dealing with that issue of does this person have the same protection as a traditional journalist or a professional journalist? Uh, and then, you know, Ed's scenario where now everybody has this information, either intentionally or not intentionally, 
what are the rules going to be about when you can dip into that data? Again, we're trial lawyers. We'd love nothing better than huge vats of data that we can dip into. We call it evidence. Yeah, and then find information and do stuff with it to paint pictures of reality or maybe not so reality. What you're, what you're touching on doesn't even get into the third party doctrine and like when we have our own rights to our own data and like when companies have it, there's a lot of these wearables that you can't even get your own data out of it. Pacemakers, sometimes you can't even get the data on your own pacemaker that's in your own body. Yeah. So um, I think some of these issues go, go even further than just, just us and the government. So yeah, I think that's a really good point because we, we tend to, because we're lawyers, think about it from, from that perspective. But there's ultimately, you know, um, there's ultimately, a, you know, a lot of these decisions about where we're going to draw these lines and how we're going to um, develop new, you know, ethical and normative guidelines in this arena are really in the hands of the coders now, right? The people design, the hackers who are designing because way before the law has developed to tell us what can come out of these devices, when it can come out of these devices, et cetera, the only thing governing that is the device themselves and the rules that are embedded into the devices. And so you mentioned pacemakers, for example. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I'm not up on pacemaker technology. But, you know, I presume now they can make pacemakers two-way. One that is, you know, keeping the data that's not accessible to you, another one that's shooting it right to your phone, and that's a commercial engineering decision, not a legal decision, well, and a lot of these this, are. A lot of this is based on the DMCA, which, well, that stuff's changed in the last week. Right. But, uh, yeah, a lot of it is they're, they're basing these claims on DMCA claims because they want to sell your data to other manufacturers, they want to sell your data to other people, and if you don't own your data, then, then they have all the rights to this. Right, and so for those of you who are not uh, steeped in, in copyright law and the DMCA. The DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, um, is a, what, mid-early 90s, mid-90s statutory development that had several things. Some people really know it well for the notice and takedown provisions online, but there's another part of the DMCA um, that involves um, uh, a pretty uh, sloppily implemented way of trying to protect copyright interests by um, outlawing circumvention of copyright control uh, uh, technologies. Uh, Section 1201 of the DMCA says that you can't, uh, it's illegal whether or not you have the right to, to the underlying copyrighted material in order to use it for fair use purposes or other, or the other reasons. Just breaking the non, uh, the, uh, the lock, so to speak, circumventing the technologies that protect the copyright material is an independent violation of the law that has no relevance to whether or not you have the right to copyright material in the first place. So it's kind of like saying, to use a weird analogy, even if you own the house, you still can't break the lock on the door. And if you do, that's an independent crime. And that's, that's what 1201 says. It was an overly broad interpretation. We've had some interesting developments in the last couple weeks with the Library of Congress recognizing certain exceptions to the non-circumvention uh, rules in 1201. Um, way after, uh, way late, honestly, but for things like compatibility and some other things. But it, that, to show you what a bad rule 1201 was, it started getting used for situations way outside of protecting people's copyright interests. It started getting used to lock up markets, to lock up data. Um, so for example, you know, 
um, despite you know there really being no copyright interest here, it was used to uh, keep people from making uh, compatible print cartridges. Um, the printer company said that they had locked that up with a copyright protection circumvention and you're breaking the law. I think K-Cups and Keurig coffee cups were another victim to the 1201 theory. So, yeah, there's a, whole bunch of, there's a whole bunch of stuff that got messed up. But in this context, the argument would be that some of the device makers, you know, are implementing uh, technologies to keep you from getting at the data yourself, um, possibly with the motivation of commercializing the data on their own, um, which leads to fascinating questions of who owns your data about yourself. And Pete, um, maybe you can talk about, because we talk about this, there's actually a, a fascinating thing in the law already about who owns data about you, and, and particularly data that's collected when you're out in the public. You know, this is counter to what a lot of privacy people think, right? And that is, you know, how much of your own, quote, data, information about you do you own anyway? Yeah. Well, yeah, and this, I mean, and I have, I have a slightly different viewpoint on this because, you know, a, a bit of a law geek. There really is no such thing as owning data right. uh, to begin with, in the United States anyway. Uh, I mean, in Europe there are some conceptions about it, but the law doesn't actually treat data as something that can be owned. So there instead is a patchwork of other laws that are built around data that can provide protection for it, like trade secret laws, like copyright law, like contract law, and you know, licensing and all. And so you have these weird structures built around collections of data to try to impose legal restrictions on who can access it and who can use it. Uh, but it isn't ownership in the same sense of ownership of copyright or ownership of a patent. So you get real kind of bizarrely complex layered things. But part of it also, if you go from our private companies and what's the relationship of ownership versus your ability to impose legal costs on people for using your data by either suing them or by getting somebody prosecuted or something, um, then you turn sort of back to the issue of privacy, uh, you know, which is, all right, my location on a particular street on a particular time at a particular day could be considered in a data bucket. You could think about that as does somebody own that piece of data about me? Or you can look more traditionally at it and say, I kind of have a privacy interest about that. Uh, it's something, you know, intimate to me, perhaps. Uh, where the law should recognize and protect that intimate information about me or an intimate relationship. And this goes back way before this, really to the turn of the century or so. We chatted about this, and you'll, you know, it's a law school thing, but William Brandeis, you know, wrote a very influential law review article about the turn of the last century, where he essentially almost created out of whole cloth the concept of a legal right to privacy, uh, where prior in the 19th century and, and certainly the 18th century when the Constitution was written, uh, people didn't think in terms of legal right to privacy. Uh, they thought more specifically about legal protection from intrusion by the government, no you know, searches or seizures you know, without a warrant, right? Uh, no quartering of troops in your home, you know, which is a big invasion of privacy. Uh, but 
the concept of a personal space or personal information that is invalid to at least casual um, you know, intrusion by either the government or by other persons is a relatively new construct. Uh, and interestingly, it was created not by passing a law, but by common law, largely created through one lawsuit at a time, decisions by judges, law review articles that sort of built this concept around a, uh, a sense of personal privacy. And of course, the most con you know, controversial uh, recognition of a right to privacy is in Roe versus Wade, you know, right, where it's the, the constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy is largely defined, or was at the time, was largely defined through this idea of privacy rights, uh, although you won't find privacy in the Constitution or in the Bill of Rights. But the issue isn't going to go away, and these type of technological changes really put pressure on the concept of privacy. So I have data in my pacemaker that's recording very, I guess, very intimate information about me. Somebody needs to have it to make sure my pacemaker keeps working right. Uh, who else gets to have it? And how important is it that other people have it versus my right to control that? I mean, I'm the first guy to sign up for the chip that can stick in my arm that's going to have my health data from the day I was born. I, I, I'm fine. Yeah, well, email me about it. I'll do it. You can know everything about me. Um, you know, I'm on that side of privacy, is I think health care could be much more efficient and better if people were less sensitive about their health information. But this is a balance. It's a societal balance uh, as to what protection you're going to place on that. And the technology is making it more and more intimate. I mean, your DNA, right? I mean, you know, I'm now, I'm, my wife is 5% Jewish, uh, Eastern European Jewish. We just learned who to know, you know, that. She's, you know, from the Iberian Peninsula. Is that kind of data going to be, um, are we going to use that to make a better world? Or are we going to protect this because people are going to say, that's information I really want to control about myself? Is that a question back there or just a, oh, okay. So a I'd blessing. Like to roll, uh, yeah. I'd like to roll your, uh, your comments back to the, the Bill of Rights. The Ninth Amendment does reserve rights to the individual that are not enumerated in the Constitution. Is that not usable in this privacy context? I mean, once we've identified a right, doesn't the Ninth Amendment just blanket cover it? Well, I mean, I think it's the, the Tenth Amendment, right, that reserves all power not granted to the federal constitution no, to the, the ninth, states. But the Ninth, is it? The Ninth is to the individual. Yeah, well. Well, I mean, so without being a total Ninth yeah. Amendment expert. I yeah, mean, you'd be the guy. I mean, I, so here, you know, here's the problem with that, right? And you I'll hear a lot of rhetoric about that, right? Really? Clearly, it, it can't be what you said because, you know, you know, there are all types of rights which we all know we don't have, even though the Constitution says nothing about them, right? The right, my right to kill you is, is not a right we acknowledge, right? And we can just go on from there, right? There's a lot of things, I think, that when the Constitution didn't affirmatively grant those rights, while we have those catch-all clauses, which are nice, don't have the, 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 the pragmatic effect in the law that we wish they did, or in fact, I'm not even sure we'd say we should say we wish they did, 
that they might because of the, the effect. There's a, you know, there clearly are rights that we as a society have said, no, those aren't acceptable rights. You know, these are the good rights and these are the bad rights. And that's, that's the way our society is set up. We don't grant absolute freedoms to people. And, and if the Constitution silent on it, it is not a, a default given that, that it's, it's a granted right. I think what is interesting about privacy is that I'm not sure the Constitution's silent about it, despite the fact that the word's not there, right? And there's, there are glimpses of it all over the Constitution. Pete mentioned the, you know, some of them. I think, I think it's there as an outgrowth of the First Amendment's assembly rights as well, potentially. I mean, you know, certainly assembly rights don't mean much if it means the government gets to, you know, write down everyone's name who was there, and, you know, or, or maybe, you know, at least there's an argument that it undercuts that right so much that you get privacy rights that way. So, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's a rhetorical trick to try to say, well, it's not talked about, it's reserved for the people, therefore we all have it. I'm not sure that's, I, I don't sure, I'm not sure that works. Can I have a follow-up? Yeah. So, where I'm coming from as a member of the EFF, um, I'm interested in, in crafting this battle properly such that we have constitutional support as well as legislative support for, for protecting data from pacemakers, from my phone's location. I write surveillance software on these phones. I very much want to understand how we can start to advocate to make sure that when we go to Congress to actually get this data protected, what are going to be the roots of our argumentation as well as what can we use to help the fight the, the people who are going to be fighting well, against privacy the good and data news is, I mean, there have been successful privacy statutes and legislation in a very much a, a patchwork approach, but there's no constitutional impediment to them. So, for example, you know, there's the Videotape Rental Protection Act. I don't know if that's exactly the right name for that act, but this is an act that says the government can't get um, your videotape rental records, right? This was spurred out of, you know, some legislators who one day woke up and said, oh, shit, <laughs> if they knew what I was renting, I'm in trouble, right? But it's a very narrow statute. You know, HIPAA is a very broad statute about certain health information. So there's nothing stopping us from implementing, you know, legislation governing this. We could have, you know, a, a body data statute, right? And I don't think you have to say, and the reason we get to have it is because it's there in the Constitution as a right. I think we could have it because the legislators hold their hands up and vote for it. And I, I don't think that you would have a problem constitutionally if they did that. So I think the fight's a purely legislative one. The, the problem is that like many of these things, I think that um, you have the countervailing you know, security and national security interests that are gonna be thrown around you know, um, uh, in, in, you know, because there's always the specter of the, the terrorist who's, if we just could get the information out of his body, we would know where he put the bomb. Right? Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of people that say, well, then we need to be able to get that information, uh, and, and where do you draw that balance? And that's, that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, well, let me, let me just go ahead. Have you guys yeah. indicated at all uh, United States v. Jones, Antoine Jones, that is the GPS um, uh, attack FBI attached a GPS on a vehicle. I've litigated it in federal yeah. habeas corpus. I'm curious, there is a path in that opinion, um, in particular the idea that um, there was a practical restraint to total surveillance, which is you physically can't do it. 
uh, we're entering an era where it is now possible through technology to do complete surveillance. And I think in Sotomayor's concurrence, Scalia handled it as a trespass, but there's something positive in that opinion that it seems like the court recognizes that there are limits in technology that present themselves in constitutional ways, at least with respect to state action. Yeah. Have you all had any? I, I mean, no, I haven't done okay. that personally, but I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right that, you know, the part of the reaction to that opinion was at some point, you know, a change in amount becomes a change in kind, right? Which is, you know, you go from, you know, well, a little bit, a little bit, now a whole lot. And now you realize the rule you developed for a little bit doesn't work for a whole lot. Uh, and you end up sort of backing into and say, oh, geez, now we got to rethink how we got where we are to begin with. This is maybe a bit of an aside, but it popped up in really a different conversation I had uh, about uh, clients who are helping remake my profession. Uh, is, you, you know, like you say, Scalia mentioned trespass, and, you know, back in the early days of fighting about bad behavior on the Internet, um, some creative lawyers, not me, more creative than me, you know, were bringing up, you know, sort of new uh, or, or dusting off very old common law causes of action, like trespass to chattel, uh, you know, which used to be a common law form of action that was recognized for abusing animals and things like that, where, you know, trespass to land was pretty clear, don't walk across my property and mess it up. And this is like, well, I didn't walk across the property, he messed with your cow. And you go, well, that doesn't count because trespass is property. So they invent, the courts would invent a new rule that says, well, like trespass to property, we're now going to recognize trespass to chattel, to things. And we're going to apply the same sort of rules to that so that you can now protect these new things. And some of that has happened with technology as well. And, you know, an idea I want to look into, maybe somebody has already thought it all through, is uh, the idea of fiduciary relationships, uh, which is something that largely developed in the common law, where there are peculiar relationships between people where a higher standard of duty is imposed on one side of it. I'm an attorney. I, there doesn't have to be a statute. There doesn't have to be a contract. Uh, the law will automatically impose certain duties on me uh, in how I deal with my client. I have to treat my client ahead of my own interests. I have to keep my client's information confidential. Um, I have to act at all times in my client's best interests. And, and there isn't a federal statute that tells me that. Uh, the, the, the courts have imposed that over the years. And the idea of an information fiduciary uh, is sort of an interesting <laughs> thought to me, uh, which is, will the law start to recognize in that situation, which is, geez, what did you do with that information? And you point to a terms of service that nobody read. And you say, well, this let me do it. Um, you know, the courts have the power in a situation where they look at the facts and say, geez, man, this, these facts just tell me the answer ought to be different. To do something like, well, I'm going to recognize an overriding duty upon you, the holder of somebody else's private information, to not do certain things with it. And maybe you can't even contract out of it. I can't have a contract with my client that says, 
I will not act in your interest. Or if an opportunity comes up where I would benefit over you, you're going to agree with me that I can do that. I can't do it. Even if we wrote it down, even if my client signed it, the court won't enforce it. Uh, because I'm a fiduciary. And it seems there, you know, particularly with, with body data, we're talking about this, you know, this kind of concept that there's going to be some fundamental rules that people can't give away, whether it's in the Constitution or in the common law. You could have different sources of that. But the real idea is, or the real source of it would be if there is a large sort of communal sense of, oh, uh, yeah, we're not going to go that way. You know, this is one step too far. You know, the problem with that is there goes your business models, right? Because, <laughs> because let's face it, um, you know, a, a lot of the innovation that's happening on the technological front, you know, and, and I know this because I represent companies like this, you know, is not a revenue-based business model from their customers. It's, it's, it's a business model about selling information about their customers to other people. Right, so you know, there's that, you know, great line that says, if, you know, if you use Facebook, you know, you're not the customer, you're the product, right? Um, and and I think that um, imposing fiduciary duties upon um, people who have that data sounds fascinating from a civil liberties perspective, and because I tend to be sympathetic to you know incursions upon my personal interests that way, it sounds great to me. It sounds terrible, though, from a business perspective for a lot of these companies who are currently basing their, their models on, on, on monetizing that kind of information. And maybe not, by the way, in an evil way. I mean, you know, certainly I wouldn't be real sympathetic to a pacemaker company who said, oh, my model is when the cops want information about how Ed's heart rate was at that moment, I can sell it to them. <laughs> I don't like that, or the paparazzi want that. But, but what if they're monetizing that information in a non-identifiable, aggregated way to talk about, you know, the fact that perhaps people who drink five beers a night, like Ed sometimes does, die more often, or their heart rate does this, right? You know, that, that, that's a potentially a very socially valuable model, and we have to at least reconcile this possibility. If we're going to be talking about them as fiduciaries who can't release that information, we, we, we should at least allow for the possibility that some monetization or exploitation of that information is m maybe what's driving the innovation that we're seeing. Yeah. And we we got to be careful not to pull the fuel out of the tank. Right, so but that, and then we, then we get into a, law, a real law geek discussion, right? You know, which is um, there's different methods of changing the law, right? Um, and, you know, one of them is what I've been talking about, which is really common law development, which you spend your whole, essentially your whole first year in law school learning about. You know, traditional, you think in terms of Justice Holmes, you know, that the history of the law is not logic, it's something. It's experience, right? The history of the law is not right, logic, right. it's experience, meaning the law really develops, is that right? Boyce would tell me if I got it wrong, Boyce is the encyclopedic sounded right. knowledge. Um, so there's one way to sort of case by case, you look at these, and you sort of say, well, in the instance that I suggested, which is maybe my heart rate data, a court might be more willing to sort of say that we're going to treat fiduciary, like you're going to have a really high standard of dealing with that data. 
while Ed's example of, you know, not personally identifiable information that has been aggregated and then is being used in a way that doesn't really expose the individual's privacy interest in any meaningful way, the law could treat that differently. Uh, and as this develops through case law, then you can have that type of refinement gets developed. You know, the other way to do it is to impact, you know, pass HIPAA you know, or to pass, you know, the DMCA, which can be effective, it's immediate, it's national, it can address a whole lot of problems. On the other hand, it can be a blunt instrument, and you can end up with a whole lot of, you know, unanticipated uh, results or problems where people start using the law for purposes that it wasn't enacted. So I am a data fiduciary in some sense. I collect location information. I encrypt it. It's cryptographically private. I legally sign it as acting as a notary. I have no legislation supporting me in any of these roles. I designed it such that Comey and, and Loretta Lynch will be stymied if they come and knock on my door. All right. That's not really the right way to do a data fiduciary. Is there something I should be asking legislators to do to protect my business versus my very blunt instrument of cryptographic privacy? And this could apply to any kind of data, right. heart rate data, DNA data, what have you, right? And yeah, my I business model I, already works. I mean, I think there is. I mean, I think that, that People who, and I've got other I've got clients, I was just literally having this conversation two days ago, about clients who said, look, you know, we have all this information about our, our, our customers, right? They've entrusted it to us and for whatever reason, you know, we're hosting an application that has data or what have you. And they would like nothing more than to be able to say, thank goodness I don't have to turn this over because the law says I don't, as opposed to I'm a liability for the customer who is handing this data over to me because it's a more efficient way of conducting their their business, and yet they have to worry that somebody's going to come get it from me, either the government or, you know, someone's going to try to subpoena it in a civil matter, and there's all kinds of, you know, and do I, you know, and they wonder, does that third party with whom I've deposited this information have the same motivation? Some, some of them do, some of them may not, you know, and, and I think that the answer t could be that hosting companies and SaaS companies and others who who have as part of their business housing data of others could get together and say it would be great if in fact we were recognized as some sort of maybe not fiduciary technically but having some shield to say look you know we're immune from this problem this is not all that different than than what happened when the industry way back in the early 90s uh, uh, the internet industry was worried about getting sued for defamation uh, or copyright infringement because of what their users did, right? It w was partly based on, I don't want to get my users in trouble. It was also partly based on, I don't want to mess with getting drawn into those problems. And, and they, there was effective legislation, the DMCA on copyright, the CDA um, on, on defamation that kind of exempted the service providers from having to deal with that. You know, I think that there could be similar things coming in the industry for people who house data who are like you who say, I don't want to turn it over. I would like to have legal support not to turn it over. I don't want to get embroiled in this problem, you know. But again, we're living in a world where I think those arguments fall on a lot of deaf ears when we got people blowing stuff up, you know. Do you guys know anything about the GDPR? Uh, the EU yeah. uh, government data? 
protection regulation that's coming out. I do now. <laughs> uh, I didn't know if, if you knew if they were making a distinction between uh, giving that information to governments versus giving it to other people because they did enumerate a couple things, right to erasure, um, which means that if you're a citizen of the EU and somebody has your data, then you could, in some circumstances, they, they've limited it since they were wrote it first. Um, you can call them up and go, hey, delete all the data that you have on me. Um, and then the other right that they're giving people is the right to your own data. So you can call that company and say, hey, send me all my data in a computer-readable standard format. Um, but I didn't know if they had differentiated corporations, other corporations from the from the government. And I suspect that it's, since it's the EU that they didn't. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that they said, that, hey, you can keep that. Uh, I'm going to try to take us back to cyborgian speech issues because that's where we were supposed to start. Um, something that um, I found really interesting in looking at the topic the way Rich framed it um, was, you know, this question, you know, we talk about forced speech in the law enforcement context and stuff, but as our bodies become more intelligent and, uh, and are not only perceiving, but having the ability to communicate, you know, I think there's some fascinating questions about the social utility and maybe obligation to be automatically communicating with each other at the data level as opposed to the to the conscious level um, I think it's easy to think about this with the current you know head scratching going on about the rule set for autonomous vehicles you know autonomous vehicles aren't just really good because they drive you places they're really good when they talk to each other and make the world more efficient right and keep them from running into each other and if there's a wreck up and around the corner, presumably all the vehicles are talking to each other so that your car is slowing down before it could possibly have sensed the wreck on its own, right? And one wonders whether we're coming to some point soon where our, you know, as cyborgs, you know, there are some interesting social questions about whether we should all be talking to each other without knowing it, you know, um, uh, and, 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 and communicating for the better good or not about what's going on, like for example, if my body knows that I'm sick because there's keen electronic sensors, should I be telling you that so that you don't come in contact with a contagious person? And you know, I think that you know that's a pretty stark example. It always gets there when you get to health stuff. Uh, you know, I think half of us would say none of your business. If I've got a cold, I, I can choose to tell you that. But there's, I think, some people that would say absolutely. I think. It's incumbent on you as a good citizen for your body, if it senses you've got a contagious illness, to alert my body. And maybe when I look at you, you look like flashing red, so I can go around you in the elevator, right? And I think that there, we're going to be dealing with these problems soon um, at some level where there's going to be tremendous social pressure to communicate this information about yourself to the community so the community you know, can benefit but at what cost, right? I mean, or, or is there even cost there? And I'm so glad you brought that back up because your opening remarks kind of implied that. When you were talking about, um, well, you started off with the comments, both of you, about um, forced speech, incriminating speech. You were talking about self-incriminating speech. But then you spread it out to the possibility that people around you that through their cyborgian, we'll say that for now, uh, uh, um, modifications, they are recording information about you just by being present. And that can become incriminating speech, right, as part of the network. Like you're talking about just now, someone knows, other people know that you're sick because the devices are, the devices are communicating. So, you know, 
one of the challenges in trials is getting people to testify and to testify you know, in, a, in a useful way. And so there are people who don't want to testify for many reasons. Uh, and I'm not talking about self-incrimination, I'm just talking about witnesses. And so when we are able to obtain this incriminating information that they have about us, this network of cyborgs, we suddenly are, get a lot more testimony or evidence that we wouldn't necessarily have had. And so I'm also interested in, um, suppose, suppose, you know, um, Pete, his eyes, you know, his, 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 and his ocular implants, um, they can hear and see what you're doing. He does not want to testify. You can try to compel him to testify, but now do we have a way to go to his service provider that has the data and put a, you know, serve a warrant on them to basically testify even though he doesn't want to? I think the current law says yes, absolutely. I mean, if Pete has a camera outside his house and happens to catch the criminal running by, Pete doesn't have any right whatsoever right now to say, yeah, I don't want to share that with you. That's right. and, 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 and it's even easier, I think, um, under the law, if that camera is backing up to the cloud for them to get it from the, from the service provider than it is to get it from Pete. And there's just no, you don't have any play there. And that's my understanding. And like, like Andrew, I, I want to, our community to work towards a kind of adapted set of laws and rights that may need to change going forward. So uh, in March, uh, my, my discussant at South By is a guy that has a camera that's permanently attached to his head, right? And I would like for the community to look closely at that and find out if there is a difference between an alternative anatomy versus a camera that's sitting in your window, something that's personally, that's part of your body, and you can make a case for that, as opposed to something just sitting in your window. Yeah. Well, here, I mean, here's an example to think about, which is, which is, you know, one of these things that I say how the law can be clunky, uh, although try to address distinctions. So, as I currently stands, if I have a conversation, say, put me in New York, Texas law is different, but put me in New York, and I have a conversation, well, no, no, we can stay in Texas. I have a conversation with Rich. Rich comes over to my house, the two of us have a conversation about something. Um, we don't shake hands and say this is a secret or private or anything. It, Rich essentially has every right he wants to, to go tell people about the conversation. Uh, I have no real legal ability to stop him from doing that. It was a conversation, so I don't have any copyright over it. Unless I disclosed something highly embarrassing, I don't have a common law privacy right to it. Uh, Rich can go tell the world what I said. And if Rich has a perfect memory, he can say it verbatim. If Rich hid a tape recorder in his code uh, and taped the conversation um, without me knowing it, actually now we do have to be in New York, sorry. Um, uh, in New York, you would uh, enrich then use the tape uh, for anything. Uh, I could sue him under New York law for violating my privacy right because he taped the conversation. Uh, and so the law treats the taping as dramatically different than the conversation. And then even odder, if we did it here in Texas, uh, Rich could do whatever he wanted to with the tape because it's a one-party consent instead of the two-party consent state. 
and that is that's sort of an example of a clunky resolution of this issue of somehow we sense it's different when the device has now recorded it versus the person has heard it. And what you're saying with the guy with the, you know, the video on his head, he's now recording everything. And that feels different somehow in both directions, both that if he's recording everything everyone else is doing, that feels more intrusive than your imperfect memory, which eventually you're going to forget what I said, but that tape recorder on that guy's head never will. So that feels more intrusive to me. On the other hand, he now has this enormous collection of everything that he's done, which kind of feels intrusive if you go and get his backups and find out everything he did. Except he kind of signed up for it. So there, yeah. there's kind of that. I mean, ultimately, much. the distinction, and there's a bunch of questions, I'm sorry, I know yeah. that person in the very back had like her hand up three times, but oh, the, the issue, so before we get to sitting in the front yeah, row but, here, man. We got but, like you know, I, I want to point out, because I think this is the whole point of tonight, and I know we're running out of time for this panel, but the dichotomies that Pete just set up, you know, he, you know, he now has a device on his head, and now the information on the device, on it, the whole dichotomy is exactly what we're talking about here, which is where does the he end, right, or he or she end? And is it an artificial distinction to talk about this device being intimate to me, but yet not part of me, and therefore, hey, you know, it's not me, versus a weird thing where, I mean, what if I strap it on my arm? Is that enough, or does it have to be under the skin? I mean, those things, I think, are silly. I think there's, that can't be the right way of making those distinctions. The guy with a camera on his head, taping everything he has, it's weird to me for us to draw the distinction the way the law probably currently does about, you know, about that not being him. It, it's a pretty intimate part of him if he's walking around with a camera on his head all the time. And it's surgically attached, and that just confuses it more. I think that we should stop looking at proximity and whether or not it's in you or out of you and look at function and intimacy of that device as a more meaningful way of determining whether or not it, it is becoming part of the you in question. And there's a question behind you. The woman behind you has a question. That, yeah. yeah, the Google Glass. In an situation, if you had Google Goggles, you could, you could film people, you could listen to people, you could do all kinds of things that people who didn't have them couldn't do. And so law isn't just the intimacy of the object, it's also the fairness, in a sense, of it. And so if but the contact lenses that let you see better than you could right. before, are those an unfair advantage? I mean, right, right, right. there's I some weird place where that line doesn't fit right for there's me. A, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fairness to it where the people, the response to Google Goggles surprised me. I thought it would be more popular, but there was this sense of intrusion. And, there, and, and that really isn't about the object or how close it's attached to their brain. It's about the notion that you've got this advantage I don't have. And humans are very, all animals, are very conscious of resource and fairness. And so there, there's also that whole issue yeah. that, that comes up that, that has, you know, no easy answer. Okay. Uh, I think we're going to have to wrap up this panel. but. Figure out a way to take oh, those yeah. two we got, questions. Well, we got them. One question. We got it? Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. Go ahead. Um, 
Could you talk about the role of the regulatory state um, with regard to this? For example, that information is periodically sent to your physician and you then have access to it as a medical record. Um, but the medical device itself is regulated by the FDA. Uh, so I'm curious, could you talk about the regulatory state and the role that they play uh, in, in this broader conversation? They don't. They don't. I, I mean, they're given the authority that the statute, you know, that a statute says. Uh, and so, um, you know, it, it should be secondary to that, that once you decide what your rule is going to be, which is the heart data only goes to certain places or the heart data can only be accessed by certain entities, uh, then, you know, that could sort of determine, all right, FDA, you're going to get it in this instance and in that. The complexity is enormous, right? Uh, and so, you know, the number of entities that have a hand in things, that can write conflicting rules versus other entities that have to interpret things um, is, you know, is going to make it very difficult. And then, of course, in a country as large and complex as ours, you know, money speaks, you know, when it comes to getting rules written. Uh, and so, very important that people who aren't in this for the money also learn enough about it to have intelligent conversations and push back, or otherwise we're going to get a lot of rules written by folks who have sort of narrow monetary interests versus broader social interests in mind. Great. So let's have a hand for that. Now we'd like to put out a special thanks to Austin's own Borgfest and Body Hacking Con for sharing with us the recording in order to publish this very interesting content. If you would like to know more about this conference, go to bodyhackingcon.com. Remember, once again, when you purchase your ticket, please use coupon code DANGEROUSMINDS. This will get you 10% off your purchase. Plus, if you're in the Austin area, please be sure to check out Borgfest's meetup group by going to meetup.com slash Borgfest dash meetup dash group to learn more about these exciting topics that they cover. But as always, dear listeners, you can check out the DMP homepage at www.dangerousminds.io or go to Facebook and search for the Dangerous Minds podcast. All of us want to thank you for joining in as we explore further the tech and the people behind it within this fastly growing community of grinding, biohacking, and implantable technology today. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments, and perhaps one day we will talk to you about the work and our projects you're exploring and developing. But until next week, seek the spark. Project won't compile, it'll be alright Computer science for life, and that's my direction Instead of beat balls, my home is throw exceptions